Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Hot topic this September was the warmest on record in a year that is very likely to also be the hottest ever. A climate scientist says the trends are so worrying she's having trouble sleeping. A ring endorsement. With an election approaching, a Polish politician marries his same-sex partner even though it's not legally recognized. He'll tell us about what he hopes to achieve and about the hats. Larger than life, the late author Khaled Khalifa was renowned in Syria for his fiction and his joie de vivre. A close friend tells us what his sudden death means for the country he loved and refused to leave. The big payoff. After decades of struggling with student loans, hundreds of thousands of Americans are now seeing their debts forgiven. For one 61-year-old, that means he can finally get his life on track. Whose bright idea was that a new satellite is so shiny that it's interfering with astronomers' telescopes, so some of them are asking the company that made it to hit that dimmer switch. And jaw-dropping. You might think a bumblebee would be easy pickings for a bloodthirsty hornet trying to bite its head off, but it turns out the bumblebee has a secret bite move plummeting to the ground. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that appreciates the gravity of the situation. Absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. That phrase could refer to about 40 things currently happening on this planet, but in this case, it refers to the thing you least want it to refer to. Absolutely gobsmackingly bananas is how one climate scientist on social media recently described the temperatures in September. And you may have said some version of that phrase yourself last month as you lived and sweated profusely through it. Today, the European Union's Climate Monitoring Agency released data for September. It says it was the warmest September on record globally. Samantha Burgess is the deputy director of the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service. We reached her in Reading, UK. Samantha, I know you were watching the numbers closely as the days went by throughout September, but to see them cumulatively like this at the end of the month, does it hit a bit differently? Yeah, it really does. I think the the magnitude of the difference for September 2023 has really surprised and shocked me and all the climate scientists that I know. And does it go beyond record-breaking? I mean, this is not just a novelty, as I was reading one one expert describe it, but for you, is it just more than numbers and breaking records? Yes, it is. So we've had a a huge number of records that have been broken in 2023. So I think it's fair to say that 2023 as a year has been quite extraordinary. We've had the warmest June on record, the warmest July on record, and the warmest August on record. So cumulatively, we've had the warmest summer on record. But September's in a whole different league 
because of the margin between September 23 and the next warmest September is half a degree. And normally when you when you have one of these records, you're maybe beating it by 0.1 of a degree or 0.05 of a degree. So to beat the previous record by half a degree is really a huge amount. And I think it's it's shocked a lot of people. Why is it happening now? It's a really good question. And we don't know the full answer of why September is so anomalous or so different to the other months that we've seen. We know there's a lot of energy and heat around in the Earth system. So we've had, we've come out of the back of that very warm summer. We have sea surface temperatures that are much higher than they ever have been. We also had the volcano in Tonga, a Hunga Tonga volcano that released a, a huge amount of water vapor into the atmosphere, which is also another type of greenhouse gas. But we do, really don't understand yet why this has been so different to other months that we've seen before. And Friedrich Otto, the climate scientist in, in London, was quoted uh, in the Washington Post and said, it's not just a fancy weather statistic. It's it's a death sentence for people and ecosystems. Is that overstating it or is that how you see it too? I I don't think it's overstating it. One of the, the things that we really need to keep in mind is we, we have this data point for the month, which is crazy. And I I get very nervous looking at this data. And if we see a similar sort of trend for October, so we know already the start of October has been very warm. And if we see that October is going to be of a similar magnitude to what we've observed in September, then it is a lot more worrying when you go from having this one crazy month to more months and and the trends are consistently going going up. So we, we have that variability in the climate system that not all months are warmer than the one before, but it, it does feel different this time. And so we're watching the data very closely to understand what happens. Is it keeping you up? Yeah, it, I, I have a family and it really makes me worried about what, you know, what biodiversity will be around in, in 20, 30 years time. Cost of living is is top of mind and, and, you know, dominating the conversation in countries right around the world. Your own prime minister has recently rolled back some climate measures to try to deal with cost of living. That's how they're framing it. Do you think, though, do you worry that there's a, a reversal in several countries around the world in terms of tackling the climate crisis? Yeah, I, I, I think they're on different scales. So the, the science is very, very clear in the impact of the climate crisis here and now. And I think politicians often um, perhaps focus on the short-term goals and the cost of living crisis is critical and it's devastating families around the world. But the reality is that with the climate crisis unabated, we will lose more lives, we will have more climate refugees, we will have more climate-related conflicts than we have right now. So the, the long-term sustainable smart strategy is to get to net zero as quickly as possible to try and mitigate some of those impacts in the future. And if we don't do that, if we're passing the challenge to the next generation, I, I do worry that they will hold us accountable. And that does keep me up at night. When all is tallied at the end of this year, just a few months left in 2023, as you know, do you think it's going to be the hottest year in recorded history, the hottest year ever? Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, and unless something changes drastically, we've run the statistics and we know right now 2023 is just ahead of 2016, the previous warmest year. This year at the moment, when we've run the statistics, this year will be 1.4 degrees above pre-industrial. And from this IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they have been very clear, and that, that's made up of thousands of scientists around the world, and their whole report is approved by governments. So it's, it's a really conservative view of the science because all of the governments around the world have had to approve it. And they really show very clearly that when we're in a 1.5 world, we have a, a frequency and intensity of extreme events. And when we're in a two degree world, we have a different frequency and intensity of extreme events that's higher and more intense. So the, the reality is that every single fraction of a degree matters. So the more change we can make now, and the sooner the changes we can make, the, the better our climate will be in the future. Samantha, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Samantha Burgess is the deputy director of the EU's Copernicus Climate Change Service. She's in Reading, England. This week, Syrians gathered in the streets of Damascus where they cried and clapped and celebrated the life of Khaled Khalifa. The author and screenwriter has died of a heart attack at the age of 59. Mr. Khalifa wrote about Aleppo, though his work was banned in Syria. His third novel, In Praise of Hatred, received international recognition, and he was awarded the prestigious Najib Mahfouz Medal for Literature for his next, No Knives in the Kitchens of This City. In The Guardian, a fellow author described him as a giant and called his death a loss for Arab literature. Lena Sinjab is a Syrian journalist, a Middle East correspondent at the BBC, and a friend of Khaled Khalifa. We reached her in Beirut. Lena, I know you weren't able to be in Damascus for Khaled's funeral, but you did organize a memorial event for him in Beirut. What were you thinking about your friend that evening? Well, I needed to say goodbye to him. I needed to see him. I needed to, you know, feel the grief, but also to celebrate his life. Uh, and I wasn't able to do so. So we decided that we have to do something here in Beirut. And I wanted to do something not traditional. I wanted to do something similar to Khaled. So we went to a pub. We uh, uh, showed bits of a film that I've done about him. We read part of his uh, novels. Uh, we listened to uh, beautiful poetry written by one of his friends. We listened to uh, old playing, you know, music that was composed by another friend. So it was like a momentum of love that was gathered around Khaled. Mm -hmm. And we also toasted and we drank Arak, the, the <laughs> one that he he loves. And we also ate Magdus, the dish that he was cooking when he died. It was, oh. you know, um, aubergine. So yeah. he's a person that celebrates life and that's how we wanted to say goodbye to him. You gave me goosebumps uh, just there. I don't know either of you or your friends, but that does sound like a beautiful, beautiful tribute, Lena. In the piece you wrote about Khaled for the BBC, you talk about the fact he was born on New Year's and that that really informed his life, his big Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Just tell me Absolutely. why you think that is. 
You know, every New Year, uh, every New Year Eve in Damascus, we used to jump from one place to the other celebrating. And Khaled is always like walking into any, you know, dance room, like taking the space, <laughs> jumping on tables, dancing and sweating and dancing and sweating. He's just loud and messy and happy. And, you know, he creates like, a, he comes in like a storm. And that's what Khaled, <laughs> storm of happiness and storm of a great vibe. And that's how uh, Khaled was. And, you know, that's how he, it, it influenced his life. Unfortunately, during the days of the war, you know, I, I remember I wrote a piece about him also in 2014, where basically he was walking in the streets of Damascus with one friend who stayed in. They felt so lonely and so bad. And that's why also I thought later that I need to document the life of this great writer, but an amazing friend who decided to stay in Damascus. Mm-hmm. There's another p- part of the piece where you talk about when he when he was out and about, like he would greet everyone. Not even everyone. I mean, you know, sometimes you would be sitting in with him in in his flat, and he'd open the window and call a seller in the in the street <laughs> or even the garbage man in the streets. He knows them by name. You would call them and come and say, come and help me. I need to install the heater system. And the guy would leave his job and come up to his flat <laughs> and help him with the heating system. He was this kind of a man that you would look at him and think it's not possible to be true, but it's true, actually. He's full of life. He is so humble and so close to people, no matter who they are. He didn't care about position. He didn't care about norms or rules. He had his own way of living. He wrote about difficult subjects. His works were critical of the Syrian government. He was beaten by pro-regime gangs in 2012. But as you say, he stayed in in Syria. What did he tell you about why that was so important to him? He, uh, if you see like a short film I did about Mm -hmm. him, he basically says, I don't want to create new memories. I don't want to live somewhere else. This is home. This is where I live. This is where my mother's grave is. And this is where I stay. And in other occasion, he told another journalist that if if the price for me to stay in my home country is to be silent, I prefer to be silent than being in exile. That's what Khaled wanted. He wanted to stay rooted to the place he was in, despite feeling exiled at his own home where all his friends were forced to leave. And he wanted to stay because there's a new generation growing up. He wanted to make connection with it and, you know, stay put in his own country. He did leave in 2014. He he went to a writer's program in Harvard, at, at Harvard. Was that difficult for him? He was so depressed and so unhappy, mm-hmm. although he managed, you know, he's the kind of person where he creates happiness wherever he is. Even if he goes back home and goes to his bed, he's like deep in sorrow, but you can never meet him without a smile on his face. At the time I was in London as well. I had left Damascus and we were making lots of video calls and he was just telling me, I, I cannot, I want to open the door and find 500 people around me. I want to go to one party to the, uh, the other. I want to cook and have friends around. And this is something was difficult for him to do at Harvard. So he just quit the program and went back to Damascus. And since then he stayed there. He would travel, he would give lectures, he would go on, you know, short writing residency, but he knew always that his destination and his return is going to be to Damascus. As you well know, there are many Syrians around the world who can't go back home. So what do you think it means to them? What do you think they take away from having Khaled Halifa's books with them now? 
you know, it's just like me. I am only two hours away from Damascus and I can't even go. I can't reconnect with my own city. I think, you know, art and literature is not only for us Syrians, it's for everyone to know about this great country, to know about this great history, to know about the great people that didn't have the chance to live freely in their own home and in their own country. And I celebrate Khalid's decision to stay put in Syria despite all the difficulties and produce what he has produced and left it for generations and generations to come. Twelve years on, the civilian deaths by the hundreds of thousands, the devastation in the cities that so many people wish they could go back to. Was Khalid hopeful about the end of this conflict, that it would one day actually come? You know, it's so funny you're talking about this because there is a, something about Khaled since the re- revolution started and he keeps betting and he keeps o- offering, you know, uh, making a bet after the other that, you know, we will be free in two months. We will be free next year. Something is going to happen next week. And he keeps losing the bets, losing the bets and laughs, you know. And only two weeks ago, he sent a message to a friend of ours because of the protest in Sweda. He said, I bet... And I bet that Sweda is going to make a change and I will see you all soon in Damascus. That's what he said before he dies. This is a person that sells hope, that sells joy, that spreads it wherever he goes. And he always said that without hope, I, I could have committed suicide. And that's the message we stay, we keep from him. Hope is our destiny. Lena, I'm sorry for your loss, but very appreciative for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was BBC Middle East correspondent Lena Sinjab talking about her late friend, Syrian author Khaled Khalifa. We reached her in Beirut. Christopher Guanya has a good job. He's an acupuncturist at a veterans hospital. But at 61, he thought he might never be able to buy a home or retire. That's because for decades, he's had a mountain of student debt that continued to grow, even though he'd been making payments for more than 25 years. He's one of hundreds of thousands of Americans in the same boat, mostly because of what the White House calls a broken student loan system. So now the Biden administration is forgiving billions of dollars of student debt, including Mr. Guanya's. We reached Chris Guanya in Florence, Massachusetts. Chris, are you planning to frame the email that you got stating that your debt is now at zero? No, but I do I do have it safely ensconced in uh, a couple of different hard drives, so I always <laughs> have a copy of it, so just in case there's any questions in the future about it. Just have those backups ready. It, that says something Absolutely. about how, how much this weighed on you for so long. Uh, absolutely. It was, a, it was a total millstone around my neck. So, yeah, it still, you know, seems surreal. Was it emotional, too, in that moment? Um, You know, when I first got the initial email in July that said I was eligible for student loan cancellation, I mean, literally, I I got excited and I got shaky. I was like, what? What? I wasn't (laughs) expecting this for a few more years. And I I was like, I, I said, okay, don't get too excited, you know, and so... Once uh, once I got that second email, that's when I just, you know, really was able to kind of take a big 
sigh and, uh, you know, and let that pressure go out of my system. So, I bet. But yeah, it was a little bit, it was a little bit emotional. Yeah. How, you know, if we go back in time, how did you come to incur this debt in the first place? So, you know, I started, I started undergraduate in back in the early eighties and I didn't actually take out a lot of money. I had a lot of, I had some grants. I did work study. Um, and then I even got a graduate degree and I got a free ride on that because I was a teaching assistant mm-hmm. uh, during that time. So I had probably about eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars in outstanding student loan debt. But when I went back to acupuncture school, I ended up with about sixty-three thousand dollars of debt total. And I got behind at the beginning. Um, what kind of interest were you paying? Eight point two five percent. And uh, so what happened was after acupuncture school, I consolidated my graduate and undergraduate loans. They're all federal loans. And so when you do that, they lock you in at the highest interest rate you borrowed at at any time in your school career. And so you couldn't refinance because this was something that was set by statute. You know, it wasn't driven by market forces. So unlike a homeowner who could refinance their home if interest rates drop, that option was not available to me. So every time I was having trouble with my business or I wasn't bringing in enough and I had to, you know, maybe do a, a temporary deferment, and, and the interest would accumulate, and it would start getting recapitalized onto the principal, and you got into that geometric growth. And so my debt rapidly expanded from sixty-three up to about one hundred and twelve thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Let me just jump in there yeah. because the White House has called this system broken, and what you're describing certainly is uh, a system that's not working in, in favor of of the people who who need this help. So. You talked. To, I, there's a couple of things you talked about there that I wanted to dig into. The option to defer—that's yeah. something, mm-hmm. as I understand it, that is suggested when folks call in to try to figure out what to do about their loans. But it doesn't really uh, work in yeah. their favor. That's right, absolutely, because you know the interest starts accumulating, and they just, like they said, you know, the interest builds up, and then they they take that accumulating interest and just put it back onto your principal. So, you know, the 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 interest is growing on an ever larger principal um, basis. And so you get that geometric growth. Um, when I got into the income-based repayment, what they did was they, they would take any accumulating interest and they let it accumulate in a separate pile. They didn't recapitalize it on the original principal amount, which stopped that massive geometric growth, but the interest was still growing. Um, but nobody ever told me about income-based repayment when I was calling in. I had to discover it for myself. So these are these are federal loans, but there are private companies operating them. Right. So that was the other thing that would happen with this system is that your loans got sold from from servicer to servicer. They would get just transferred and records would get lost or you would have to fill out new paperwork. And in the meantime, they would put you in to an administrative forbearance and that would allow your interest to grow again. And these periods of forbearance didn't count towards the uh, the 250 or 300 uh, months of payments you had to make. So your your goalposts of when your loans were supposed mm-hmm. to be forgiven kept getting pushed out. Just you know, paying your credit card at the end of the month is a relief for for most people, right? This yeah. is it's my heart is tightening from stress just hearing you describe it. It's a nightmare. I mean, it was uh, I'll, personally. I mean, I in the early mid 2000s. I really spiraled into depression. I was trying to build a business and I had this, this 
this huge weight of the student loan debt hanging over me. I had to move back in with my parents in my mid-40s, which was demoralizing to the extreme. What do you say, Chris, to people who don't agree with this forgiveness, to those who think it's unfair for taxpayers to pay for these debts? Well, here's what I will tell them. Since 1989, when I got out of school, I started paying on my loans. I paid back almost every dollar that I borrowed originally. And everything that is being forgiven is accumulated interest that was accumulated at an artificially high interest rate. And the system itself was unjust because it confused people. It was opaque. There were no clear rules. Um, There was a whole host of problems. So this is really justice. That's what I that's mm-hmm. what I say to these people. Now that that balance is zero, you've got the you've mm-hmm. got the emails saved to prove it. What are your plans now? Save for retirement. Um, yeah. I'm 61, you know, and a lot of this money that would have been going into my retirement, you know, went towards my student loan. But yeah, I can I can build my retirement, and uh, that's really my my core goal right now is to kind of you know make up for some lost time. Christopher, congratulations and thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, reporting on this. Chris Guanya is an acupuncturist who recently had his student debt forgiven. He's in Florence, Massachusetts. Last week, Polish politician Robert Biedron posted an Instagram video. The soundtrack was the Taylor Swift song, Love Story, and it was an appropriate choice. The video showed a smiling Mr. Biedron planting a kiss on the lips of his longtime partner. The feelings were real, but unfortunately, the wedding wasn't. Poland is one of a dwindling number of European countries that still doesn't recognize same-sex marriage. The wedding was a chance to highlight the lack of marriage equality in the country and put it on the agenda of the upcoming parliamentary elections. We reached Robert Biedrin on the road near Lublin, Poland. Robert, I watched the video of your ceremony. We have to talk about the hats. Tell me about the hats. <laughs> yeah, those are the traditionally inspired folk hats uh, prepared by a traditional group of women who uh, try to cultivate the um the, the folk uh, story of the region and there we were with these enormous beautiful colorful uh, traditionally inspired progressive heads they they were beautiful they make you at least a couple of feet taller right what are they what are they made of what do they show and you also had uh, traditional folk um sort of capelets on as well usually these kind of dresses are being worn for the marriage ceremony uh, by between men and women uh, and uh, in this case i think it symbolizes that you can be living in a country with tradition but you cannot get married or register your same sex uh, partnership in poland in 2023, in the middle of uh, European Union, uh, you have a country where you don't only cannot get married, but almost 30% of uh, the country are LGBTI free zone. Actually, where we are talking, I am in one of these regions where we have this LGBT free zone, which resembles very much the 
story um, of Jew free zones because before mm -hmm. the Second World War, where Jews could not enter shops or trams or universities. What is it like yeah, for you to right. even drive through somewhere like that? No, I mean, you're a politician, you've had the ceremony, but what is it like for you as a person in this community to drive through an area that has called itself that? Well, uh, for me personally, it's uh, very personal because the place where I was born is also LGBTI free zone. And then I think about all these teenagers who still are there and they're growing up knowing that they are the secondary class citizens. They they don't only don't have rights, but also there are communities who don't wish that they will be there. So that's why it's so important that these uh, uh, symbolic things like this marriage by the way, after more than 20 years of our relation with my partner, mm -hmm. that this will take place and they will see there is other phase of Poland. That there are people who are gay, who live openly life mm -hmm. and who want to be treated equally. So I, I did it also for these teenagers. The elections are being held later on this month. What are you doing to make sure this issue is in the minds of voters? The, the voters are ready for the change. The great majority of Polish society is in favor of registered partnerships or same-sex marriage. So they're ready to, for that. The politicians are not ready. The politicians are using the biases, stereotypes, uh, prejudices towards LGBTI community to divide us and to rule. And that's why it's important that these uh, open, tolerant, progressive part of the society will go and vote. And we will join this European family where Poland is becoming like uh, an open-air museum where you can go, come and uh, see like uh, Europe look like in 80s or 90s, where we had no all of this progress made on LGBTI community. In less than two weeks, when that vote happens, after the results are tallied, if things don't end up the way you hope they will, what will you do then? Well, while you're asking me, I'm in the car driving through this LGBTI free zone. So my first uh, um, thought is <laughs> I will run away quickly. It's a terrifying scenario for the future if we continue this way, because the, the whole Europe is changing for more equal and uh, uh, we will just stay behind. And it, staying behind means that 40 million nations with... Uh, around 2 million LGBTI people will be treating its citizens like secondary category citizens. You've presided over a lot of weddings as a politician. What was it like to, to have your own? Yes, I was uh, a mayor of the city. Mm -hmm. And one of the privileges of being a mayor of the city is that you can uh, uh, you can uh, celebrate, you can uh, organize a wedding. And I organized more than 200 weddings. And I was always on the other side. I was always envy all these couples that they can celebrate their love. They can invite their family. They can be recognized by the state. And then in this theater play where we were uh, doing this symbolic wedding, 
I stood on another side, but I was so nervous that I must tell you, <laughs> I did not enjoy much to my surprise. Oh. I knew it was important, but I was like so nervous, so stressed. Now I understand because I've seen uh, these people being nervous. They are, they were losing their conscience. They were crying. They were smiling. <laughs> they were disappearing somewhere at the latest moment because they could not handle to repeat uh -oh. the, uh, <laughs> the the words. But now I understand them, and I know how important is this moment. And this will determine me even stronger to fight for LGBTI rights and for same-sex marriage because I see this is one of the most important uh, moments in our life and I want all people to celebrate. So are you going to have another ceremony, another kiss, if same-sex marriages are, are made legal? I hope I will and I hope I will do it in the place where... There are now LGBTI free zones, and at this time, there will be no more. I think I should do it for all these kids who are waiting for this moment, and they're not left behind and alone. Robert, thank you. Thank you very much. We reached Robert Biedron on the road near Lublin, Poland. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. One of the top 10 brightest objects in the night sky started out right here on Earth. That's the word from astronomers around the world who measured the brightness of a cell phone satellite known as Blue Walker 3 as it made its orbit. Their findings were published this week in the scientific journal Nature. Siegfried Egel is one of the authors. We reached him in Las Palmas in Spain's Canary Islands, where he's been presenting his findings at the International Astronomical Union Symposium this week. Siegfried, just how bright is this satellite, the Blue Walker? If I was looking up on a clear night, would I be able to spot it? Yeah, easily. I mean, this satellite is one of the brightest objects in the sky now when you reflect sunlight. It's, in fact, I think the eighth or ninth brightest object, uh, brightest star, if you will, including the sun. You spot it as a, as a very, very bright moving dot, almost looks like a UFO, oh. <laughs> or what you would imagine to be a UFO. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, I think if you've seen planes at night, um, it's kind of like that, but it's not blinking. It's just like very, very bright over a long arc on the sky. It's also moving a bit faster, I guess. So brighter than the North Star. Oh, yeah, much brighter. Yeah. What does your study tell us, revealed to us, that we haven't known before? So I think the new uh, aspect of this study is that, first of all, um, Blue Walker is a very, very bright object. In fact, it's been brighter than any other uh, man-made object, except maybe the International Space Station. 
we we knew that uh, satellite constellations can be bright, right? Starlink is uh, as bright as uh, I think uh, 95% of all the stars. So that means you can easily, you know, view Starlink satellites as well um, from the ground with the unaided eye. The problem with Blue Book is that it is uh, orders of magnitude brighter than even the Starlink satellites. And we didn't quite know how bright it would be once it unfurled. It's a big um, phased array antenna, mm-hmm. which is about 64 square meters. Um, that's, that's quite a size. What's your biggest concern? In your mind, what's the worst case scenario, even if, if this kind of thing goes unchecked and we see more and more of these extremely bright satellites in the sky? So the problem with those satellites are... Um, that on the one hand, like they're really impacting astronomy because astronomy uses very, very sensitive um, detectors. And with those detectors, it's a bit like, you know, watching with binoculars right into the sun. At the best case, you know, you're just going to be, you know, getting a a bit of a a greenish tint in your view for a little while. But worst case, you can really do substantial damage. And satellites that are that bright are actually um, really causing massive data loss or even like potential damage the um, telescopes themselves. What do you mean and by the data? The data what kind of data is being lost? What's happening? So the way that astronomers collect images is they are kind of trying to um, collect photons, and those photons are sort of um, when they impinge on the detectors, they are producing electrons, and those are kind of collected in buckets. And if you collect too many photons in those buckets, they kind of overflow and sort of uh, flood the entire detector. And this is what would happen actually with uh, more modern telescopes mm-hmm. when they would stare directly at Blue Walker 3. So, so you'd, you'd literally like not only use like a tiny little fraction of the sky when you kind of see Blue Walker 3 passing through the astronomical image, you'd actually use, you know, lose entire detectors. So, so it will affect, you're worried that it's going to affect astronomers' ability to, to make their observations, collect their data. I've also read that there's concern about radio frequency interference. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and there's a very interesting trade-off here. So, while we would love to uh, have companies making the satellites, you know, as dim as possible, that you could achieve basically by making the area of the satellites a little smaller, um, that has exactly the opposite effect on radio astronomy. So one of the things of Blue Walker 3 is that the big antenna allows them to focus the beam really, really well onto a very sort of narrow targeted area. If they were to make this a bit smaller, um, they would lessen the interference with optical astronomy but they would then increase the interference potentially with radio astronomy. And that's a a very, very big engineering challenge. So ATS, the company behind the Blue Walker satellite, says it's working to to mitigate this kind of problem in satellites that it builds in the future. Is is that enough? Is that promise enough? Or do you think there needs to be international regulation? That is an excellent question and a very difficult one. at the moment, the uh, IUCPS is working with um, companies and to solve these problems in a collaborative manner. Um, this is probably the, the right way forward because regulations take a while. Um, there's also no international agency that can actually regulate this. Um, it works a little better in the, in the radio spectrum where you have the ITU that is sort of taking care of this. Um, but for the optical bands, like there is no one body where you can actually even impose regulations on that are then kept worldwide. And so we hope, you know, that the goodwill of companies is enough for now. And it seems like it's working. So SpaceX has proven that they're really um, working hard to solve this problem. SD Space Mobile also promised um, to do their best um, to mitigate some of the effects that they are causing. But uh, we'll see. So 
if companies are solving this problem voluntarily, that's fine. Um, I think everybody wins. If that's not the case or somebody tries to cut corners, that is where we have to seriously consider regulations. Satellites like these are, are of course, their their goal is to, to help us here on Earth improve communications, bring internet to places that have never had it. So do you think that there's there's some merit to the argument that maybe this is something we have to accept, this this brightness and the challenges that that might bring and how it might affect the night sky, given the benefits? So there are definitely tons of benefits um, to having constellations out there, um, you know, broadband internet everywhere, um, you know, including communities that are otherwise isolated. And that is not on dispute at all. But it's a bit like having a um, new neighbor move into next door. Uh, and they are like celebrating parties and blasting, you know, music all night long. And what astronomers are doing is just like to knock on the neighbor's door very gently and say, could you tune it down a little bit? And this is what we are trying to do here. Um, we're not saying that, you know, there shouldn't be any satellite constellations at all. Uh, we're just uh, hoping that satellite constellation operators um, take their um, obligation to maintain the space environment as clean as possible, seriously. Siegfried, I thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Siegfried Egel is an astronomer with the University of Illinois. We reached him in Las Palmas, Spain. You would think a group called the American Alliance for Equal Rights would applaud the work of the Fearless Fund. It offers seed funding and grants to small businesses founded by black women, which sounds like the kind of thing an equal rights organization would champion. But you would be forgetting that the alliance was founded by conservative legal strategist Edward Bloom, and that Mr. Bloom's last big target was affirmative action admissions at U.S. colleges and universities. Thanks to his efforts, the Supreme Court recently ruled that race-based admissions are unlawful. And now he's won his first victory in a new fight with the Fearless Fund. This week, an Atlanta court ruled that the fund must temporarily stop issuing grants. Arian Simone is its CEO, and we reached her in Atlanta. Arian, when the Supreme Court ruled against affirmative action in June, did you think at that point that the architects of that case were going to be coming for you? No, I did not. This was a complete surprise on August 2nd which is the day the suit was filed, which is the same day the press reached out to our staff, we found out we had a lawsuit. Well, you found out from the press? Originally, yes, but I did not know if that was true. Mm. And then I asked my staff to pull up the filing and they pulled it up. In its decision about the Fearless Fund, the 11th Circuit Court writes that your approach is, quote, racially exclusionary. How do you process those words? Well, I'm not able to comment on the case mm -hmm. to that extent as far as what the courts have even said. But what I can say is that the reason why we do the work that we do at the Fearless Fund and the Fearless Foundation are due to all of the disparities that exist in venture capital. So programs like this wouldn't exist if they weren't needed. Last week, a different judge did rule in your favor. That was a judge appointed by Bill Clinton. Two of the judges who ruled against you this week were appointed by Donald Trump. So this seems to be clearly coming down political lines. How do you see it ending? I see it ending in our favor, and I see it ending victorious for the Fearless Fund and the Fearless Foundation. 
I can't say specifically why this case has come about, but what I can say that I do think that this is a precedent case and one that people are trying to use as a baseline to possibly eliminate DEI funding and possibly eliminate minority funding to women and people of color as a whole. I know we are just in interesting times and in an interesting climate where we've seen Roe versus Wade reverse. We've seen affirmative action overruled. And it seems to be a very quick, rapid reversal on rights, unfortunately. But I want to be very clear with you today. Mm -hmm. I want the same thing that Edward Bloom wants. A world where race doesn't matter. It's just unfortunately that in this case it does right now. And programs like this have to exist until we get to an equitable state. Do you think that's what Edward Bloom really wants? Well, that's what the media claims. And that's what statements have claimed as far as race being removed mm -hmm. from different things. I would love that. <laughs> you mentioned how difficult it can be. Uh, you know, without you in the space for people to get the funding they need. For people who are just hearing about the Fearless Fund, tell us what you do and what your goal was when you started it. I got into this space due to the racial disparities that exist in VC. Women of color receive 0.39%, which is a fraction of a percent of VC funding, as well as by, while making up over 20% of the population within the United States of America. What I can say is this for me has actually been quite personal. I was a college student at Florida A&M University and I owned a retail store in the mall. And that's when I first had my experience of raising capital. And I saw then that very few business investors looked like me. And I made a promise to myself that one day I would be the business investor I had been looking for. And that promise looks like the Fearless Fund today, which is backed by JP Morgan Chase, Bank of America, MasterCard, PayPal, Costco, General Mills, Ally Bank, and a host of others. So you've got a lot of, of big name support. Just give our listeners a sense of the kinds of businesses that are benefiting from these $20,000 grants you give out. So many businesses, over 350, have benefited from our grants as a whole. And we have multiple grant programs at the foundation. And we've deployed over $4 million in grant capital to those businesses. And those businesses come from a range of sectors. Some are service businesses, some are product businesses. Some have products on retail stores that we're all familiar with like Costco or Target. But what the grants do as far as impact, they help people to manage their cash flow, which is the number one pain point for small businesses. They help people with their hiring. They help people with their marketing plans. They are definitely needed as it pertains to them growing their businesses. Is there one business in particular that you're excited about or that you were really? Oh, I can't do that out of 350. <laughs> that's almost like any of a favorite child out of 350 plus. Fair enough. That's a bit much. So on the, <laughs> on the fund side, we've invested in 44 companies. On the foundation side, we've deployed over 350 grants. But to pick a favorite child out of almost 400, that's that's a bit much. <laughs> Understandable. You know, those who, who hear these stories, you know, the case that you're, you're dealing with now, the Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action, the United States being in, in the political place that it is, um, what would you say to a young black entrepreneur who, who is worried about their, their options right now? I would tell them to stay encouraged. I don't think that, how should I put this? 
There, if somebody is worried right now, they're used to adversity. <laughs> if somebody is concerned, they have been resilient till now. I would encourage them to remain fearless, remain resilient, remain steadfast. And just know that people are working on your behalf day in and day out to make sure that this world is a better place in this area of funding for you. If you if you put yourself in the future and are thinking back on this time for the Fearless Fund and this case, how do you think it will fit in, in the history and legacy of what you're trying to do here, this moment? I think that it is definitely a pivotal moment in time, similar to even the racial reckoning of 2020 with George Floyd. It's a very pivotal moment in time because the story is also being written, but I definitely believe that we will be victorious. It will not just be a mark, but it will definitely be an in, just an indicator that progress still takes place. Arian, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Arian Simone is the CEO and co-founder of the Fearless Fund. We reached her in Atlanta. In August, a wildfire destroyed most of West Maui, including the historic resort town of Lahaina. It's considered the deadliest wildfire in the U.S. in more than 100 years. Starting this weekend, West Maui will reopen to visitors in the hopes of boosting the island's tourism-driven economy and avoiding an unemployment crisis. But many residents say two months is too soon. Jordan Ruidas is the founder of Lahaina Strong, which organized a petition with more than 16,000 signatures asking to delay the reopening. We reached Ms. Ruidas in Lahaina, Hawaii. Jordan, what concerns you most about that date, October 8th? My biggest concern is the uncertainty and the mental health that the people of Lahaina are currently dealing with. Um, they, they're already having to endure so much with trying to find long-term stable housing, um, not having safe schooling options or childcare options in Lahaina at the moment. Um, just a lot of things are still uncertain. And so um, I'm worried that opening up will be that that breaking point for them. The governor, Josh Green, has said thousands of people have lost their jobs and that, that people getting back to work is important as part of the, the rebuilding process. We actually, on our program, spoke to the executive director of, of the Hawaii Work, Worker Center. He's based in Honolulu, and he was by no means setting a date or, or rushing to, to a return for tourism, but he also said that he was he hearing from workers that they were worried about their livelihoods and that they were feeling better about bringing tourists back or inviting tourists back. So so what do you say to the governor's position, but also workers who who say it's time for them to get back to work? I would say, do they feel that they want to get back to work or do they feel that they need to get back to work because of financial situations? Um, that's why we are asking the government officials to look into aiding, financially aiding the people of not only Lahaina, but Maui. There are 
there is money out there and they just haven't put it out yet. So I really would like to ask, is it they feel they need to or they actually want to? So did no one from the state come to speak with you? If if I'm being honest, our mayor has not even come to have any type of meeting or um, community listening session with us to this day. He has had meetings, but it was more of them giving us information and not asking for community input. Um, our governor has not come and spoken with the people of Lahaina as well. Um, Why do you think that is? Us, I I honestly don't know, and it's really baffling to us. Um, it 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 honestly really hurts us. They make comments that we're gonna be. Um, at the front, making decisions. They make comments saying that Lahaina is going to have a seat at the table with making decisions, but obviously their actions say otherwise. It wasn't until last week, Wednesday, when um, the Maui County Council actually held a meeting um, in a ballroom at the Westin in Lahaina. That was our first time the community could actually speak to government officials and we had the floor to tell them how we felt. So that was almost 50 days after the incident, the, the devastating fires that we actually got to speak. And they didn't change their minds afterwards? Um, technically, no. It is above the Maui County Council's head. We did get um, a couple Maui County Council members along with a couple senators and our West Maui rep to write letters to the governor. Mm-hmm. Um, in support of our letter that we wrote, asking him to delay. Unfortunately, I guess that still hasn't changed his mind. Is there a date in your mind where you can imagine it reopening to tourists? Um, We're not looking at any hard dates. We are pushing for certain benchmarks to be made so these people can have a little more certainty in their lives and feel comfortable going back. So that goes back to the um, the stable housing and the safe schooling options for the kids. And even, I'm going to throw this in there, we don't even have clean water sources in Lahaina. Um, what are people doing wanna, right now? Um, we're kind of trying to survive off bottled water, <laughs> to be honest. We have a store that just opened up last week in Lahaina. And um, I went the other day, I asked them when their meat shipment was going to be in. And he said they can't receive any meat because they don't have clean water to cut the meat up and wash everything and they're having to use porta potties while they work. You've got other things to worry about than than making tourists yeah. comfortable it sounds like. What would you say yeah. to tourists? What would you say to to tourists Jordan who are sort of hearing competing messages, you know, at the outset yeah. as when this all happened there was, you know, messages don't don't come and then more yeah. recently when we we last covered the story the sense was you know you can start coming again and we're hearing this from the governor. What what would you and and your neighbors want tourists to hear from you? I would say that West West Maui needs to remain closed. Um, we still need to collect ourselves. People are still grieving. People are still mourning the losses that they've endured. Um, the rest of Maui is wide open, and it has been since the fire happened. They are ready to receive folks um, and give you the vacation that you folks want. But the people of Lahaina... We don't feel that we are capable to provide you guys that aloha experience that you folks are looking for at this time. So we implore you to go visit other parts of the island or Hawaii. But is the governor really inviting people to Lahaina or is he inviting them to to come to other parts that are are in better shape? They have not put 
any campaigns or advertisements out there since the fire saying that we're still open. It's us people on the ground, us community members that are trying to push that information to the mainland. But But now they want to spend all this. Yeah, we're closed. So now, but now they want to spend all this big money and do all these campaigns to campaign that West Maui is open. And just like our council member Tamara said yesterday, Mm -hmm. they have done nothing to campaign the rest of the island since the fire. There's no Makena's missing you, you know, mm-hmm. like our beaches are empty. Come see us in South Maui. There's been none of that. But why are we spending a bunch of money trying to advertise West Maui now? And they don't realize you have to drive past all the devastation to get to those areas. And um, we already have, and it's really sad for me to say this, but we have people that, you know, drive by and they're stopping on the side of the roads and taking pictures and... Right videos and it's it's just really really hurtful um it's traumatizing as a lot of these people have not even had the chance to return to their properties yet it was just last money monday they opened the first street of people to go back and sift through their properties so it's very triggering it's very traumatizing jordan i, I hear you have your hands full there with with your kids too but so i appreciate it no, <laughs> not at all no apology needed uh jordan i appreciate your time though thank you Thank you so much. Jordan Ruidas is the founder of Lahaina Strong. She's in Lahaina, Hawaii. We contacted Hawaii Governor Josh Green's office for comment. The response reads in part, quote, The decision to reopen West Maui to tourism on October 8th was made after weeks of meetings and conversations with a broad spectrum of stakeholders within the Lahaina community that included hundreds of working class families and small businesses devastated by the wildfire, unquote. It's a beautiful morning in a glade in England. The dew is glistening, the birds are singing, and a bumblebee is buzzing along, foraging for nectar and pollen. But in an instant, that peaceful pastoral scene becomes punishing and pugilistic. Out of nowhere, an Asian hornet flies into the bumblebee, gnashing its mandibles in an attempt to decapitate it. And what can a fluffy pollinator do against a brutal, bloodthirsty predator? Well, to put this in terms of professional wrestling, it can do this. Oh, look at this. The world? Oh, my God. Innovative, unique offense from both of these guys. Oh, my Lord. That is it. Cover him. That was one wrestler pile-driving another wrestler, the equivalent of what a buff-tailed bumblebee can do to an Asian hornet. Scientists from the University of Exeter have recently published a study on what they discovered when they watched those two insects do battle, thinking at first that the bumblebee would get slaughtered. But they were surprised to see that the bumblebees have one foolproof trick. As Thomas O'Shea Weller told The Guardian, the second the hornet grabs onto or clashes with the bee in the air, the bumblebee drops like a brick straight onto the ground. So first, the bumblebee is just flying around. And then the hornet attacks. And then... Oh, look at this exchange. Oh, my God! Yep, a 
According to Mr. O'Shea Weller, quote, Hornets are pretty persistent, but that slam dunk action makes them let go. It bounces them off, unquote. He and his colleagues watched 120 battles between Hornets and Bumblebees, and the Bumblebee pile driver worked every single time. Pretty impressive. Who would have thought it would come out ahead because of its falling behind? You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.